last week's message, I stuck with that. But this is different, actually quite different from how it originally reads. And how it reads in the Greek is important for the message of our text for today. John 1, verses 10 through 13. Here's how it reads, and listen. He was the true light, which gives light to all men coming in the world. The Word, as the true light, gives light to all who come into the world. Every man, woman, and child born in the world has the light of the world shined on him, shined on her. Here's where we come back to the binary nature of truth. What happens when the true light shines on all who come into the world? That's the question of our text. What happens when the true light shines on all who come into the world? How many answers do you think John will give us? Two. Two answers. Two things happen. Number one, the light is rejected. Or number two, the light is accepted. It's received. What happens when the true light shines on all who come into the world? The light is either rejected or it is received. It matters that John makes this point so early in his gospel because of this binary dynamic that we see in the world. Some rejecting, some receiving is exactly what unfolds in all of the gospel accounts. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it in all the letters of Paul. And the anger aimed at Christians who hold to biblical truth. We need to understand it or we might be tempted to abandon the truth. So let's read John 1, verses 1 through 18, and as I said, we'll focus on verses 10 through 13. John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He was the true light, which gives light to all men coming in the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we turn to this word now and focusing in on that smaller section. We pray that you would help us, help us to understand that the light is either received or it's rejected. Help us to recognize this truth that we might glorify you as we live in this world. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So our first point is this. We, we do not need to fear to hold to the truth of God's word simply because some will reject it. 
Let's uh, read verse 10 again, since we're starting 10 through 13. But let me combine verse 9 as I translated it earlier so you can see how these are working out. He was, verse 9, he was the true light, that is the word. He was the true light which gives light to all men who come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So verse 9 tells us that the light has a witness in the created world so that no, no one who comes into the world is without knowing the light. So here in verse 10, we see three truths on display. Truth number one, the light, the true light was in the world. Now this, support, this supports the, the point of verse 9, but how? How was he in the world? Well, first, through creation. Not because he's part of the created world, but through its witness of his glory in creation. You know these verses. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. All of creation shines the light of the presence of God to all who come into the world. Another familiar passage, Romans 1, 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The Lord is in the world by the witness of creation, but creation teams up with our consciences so that we recognize the true light is in the world. Paul again from Romans 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. John will give us yet another way that he was in the world in verse 14. He says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The last way the true light is in the world is through the written word of God. Truth number two, that was truth number one, that the true light was in the world. Truth number two, and the world was made through him. This restates a point that we've already studied, one that we found in verse three, that the word made all things. The third truth found here, and the world did not know him. Now this would seem to conflict with truth number one, that he was in the world. But it doesn't conflict at all when we understand the terms. This word world we've looked at already. The world in John's writings is the realm of unbelief. It's all that has fallen into sin that belongs to the prince of the power of the air, what John has already called the darkness in verse 5. No, it says the world does not know him. What does this mean? Well, we know from the Psalms and from Romans that all the world does know him such that no, no one can say, I'm innocent, I never knew you. But John's point is this, that the realm of darkness did not understand, did not follow the true light. They did not believe him. They don't have a personal relationship with him. John 10, 14 and 15 says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. To know the good shepherd is to be one of his sheep. Knowing the Lord like he knows the Father means to, to be like him, to have a close fellowship with him. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Knowing God and Jesus Christ equals having eternal life. The world, the realm of sin and darkness does not 
know the true light. John kind of narrows down this category from world as a fallen realm to the covenant realm of Abraham in verse 11. He says two closely related things. Look at it there. He came to his own place and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own place. The word, the true light, came to Israel, the promised land, his own place. John might have even had Nazareth in mind. And he came to his own people who did not receive him. His own people is clear enough. It was the Jews. The word receive means to take. The the Jews didn't take him as their savior. They didn't cling to him as the one promised in the law and the prophets. They rejected him. Now, this is and isn't surprising, right? I mean, we know it's, it isn't surprising because we know Israel's history, how Israel lived with the Lord in the past. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 gives a, a really concise summary of how Israel lived with God. He says this, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. That was always half of Israel's response to the Lord. The other half, though, it is, respo- it is surprising that they didn't respond with, with greater fullness than they did. Paul writes of all that the Jews had. They are Israelites, he says in Romans 9. They're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. It isn't surprising that they turned away from him, but it is surprising. Matthew, in Matthew 13, confirms what John says here. Jesus comes to his hometown. He taught them in their synagogues, so they were astonished. Here's how it writes. Those people said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Beloved, we must not fear to hold the truth of God's word simply because some will reject it. He is in the world with manifold witnesses in creation, in our consciences, and in the canon of Scripture, the word. There's no mistaking the presence of the Word. Yet despite the omnipresence, the ever-presence of witnesses, He is still rejected. Now we find this in two places, right? We find this in ourselves, and we find this in the world. How often do you resist the teaching of God's Word? How often do you ignore the preaching of God's Word? How often do you resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit when He comes to you with demands for your change? How often do you minimize godly counsel? Beloved, I'm just like you. How often? Often, right? You and I resist the Word, the Spirit, and the church. This is unfortunately normal human conduct, but it's not sanctioned conduct. In fact, we all might be a little too quick to say that our resistance to the Lord isn't that bad, It could be worse. Of course it could be worse. But this, unfortunately, is an inappropriate thing to rest in contentment on. Why would we be content with any resistance to the Lord at all? In other words, you and I, we must learn to be more discontent 
Don't you like hearing that from me? You need to be more discontent, folks. But discontent maybe in a way that you're not thinking. Discontent with your sins. Discontent even with your current spiritual condition. You and I, we are too content when we should be more discontent. The Bible teaches that those who are discontented with their sins and unsatisfied with their current spiritual conditions, those are the ones who hate their sins, pursue the death of their sins, and in the end, they're, they're the ones that are more joyful and more worshipful, more hopeful, more peaceful. I mean, at the end of Paul's life, what would, what would we expect to, to hear from the Apostle Paul? Two things. Here's one. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am what? Foremost. You know what else he said? In Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How do these two things go together? Paul hated his sin. Do you know what it means to hate sin? It means to energetically do the opposite. The energy that you and I would expend in hating something we detest, we need to expend in doing the opposite of our sins. Are you following me? We can't say that we actually hate our sins until we are energetically doing the opposite of our sins. When is a thief no longer a thief? Just when he stops to steal or when he gives? In fact, hating without acting on that hatred is useless. To hate our sin is to energetically do the opposite. But in order to do the opposite, we have to stop resisting God's Word. Because apart from God's Word, we wouldn't know what sin is, and we wouldn't even know what the opposite is. Beloved, this is an urgent matter. Do you know what happens to people who consistently resist God's Word? We become proud and stubborn in our knowledge. We become hardened, and mercy is difficult. We're impatient with others. We're quick to judge or demean others and quick to defend ourselves. Like a second lieutenant in the officer's club who says, the key to being a second lieutenant is to admit nothing, deny everything, and always make counter accusations. <laughs> Toast. Beloved, are you discontent with your sin? Are you unsatisfied in where you are with the Lord? Not that he's withholding something from you, but that you could be so much more in him if you just hated your sins more by doing the opposite. Here's your homework. Make a list of two sins, just two, or habits, harmful habits that you have. And then, and then it's a four-step process, you're right? Pray, stop, do the opposite, repeat, Okay? Two sins, two harmful habits, pray that God would facilitate this whole process, stop doing them, start doing the opposite, and repeat. The second, the second place that we find rejection of the light of Christ is in the world. Should we be surprised? No. When we speak to our unbelieving neighbors, coworkers, classmates, colleagues, family members, they know. That's important. They know because God has not left himself without a witness in creation. 
They know they should follow Christ, but they refuse. This was John's point. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So if you're pressing that conversation with an unbeliever, it's like pressing a zit. Eventually it's going to pop, and it's going to pop on you. Do you know this about the world? Are you with me now? Are you with me? Do you know this about the world? We can't accommodate the Christian faith to the world to make it more palatable. What did Paul say? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. When I was growing up, my mom would make sauerkraut on the stove. She's here. She's right here. Mama would make sauerkraut on the stove. Our kitchen was on the bottom floor of a split level. My bedroom was, so you go up a short flight of stairs, kind of a, we had a landing with a, a TV in there, up a short flight of stairs, and there's my room. Whenever mom put on sauerkraut, it was like a draft from underneath the burner, up the stairs, into the room, into my nose. Every time. I got nauseous every single time. I would gag on that smell. You didn't know that, did you? I stayed, as a result, I stayed away from kraut my whole life until, until I went to Germany and someone served up some brats with kraut. Now, you know what? Nothing else goes better with brats than kraut. Now, listen, the smell of sauerkraut didn't change. I was enlightened. Listen, the only light of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be the aroma of death to death for some, and it always will be, but it will also be, and we'll come to this in the next point, will be the aroma of life to life for others. The gospel message says that sinners are headed to judgment unless they repent and receive the body and blood of Christ for them. Hell is real. Judgment is real, and it's coming. The world will not be helped to escape judgment if we change the message. But only the elect will respond. Only those upon whom the Father has put His love in eternity past will respond. The way is broad to destruction, and many walk on it. The way is narrow to eternal life, and few walk on it. But beloved, we need to share the message of God's love for the nations, but we can't change the message to make it sound better. Changing the message will make the message ineffective. So in sharing Christ, don't be surprised if you're rejected more than you're accepted. Jesus also said, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. But, thanks be to God, that's only part of John's point. Rejection isn't the only response. So the second point is this. We must not fear to hold the truth of God's word simply because there are those who will receive it. Look at verse 12. But whoever received him... He gave to them the privilege to become children of God to the ones believing in His name. This, this is wonderful news. John records several important things here. He explains who will receive the word. Whoever is the word that's used there. Whoever received Him. Those are the ones who are believing in His name. Whoever is a small word with huge implications. In John uh, verse 11, he records that the word came to his own people and they did not receive him. And that's true, but some did. 
the apostles, his disciples, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, the apostle Paul. It's important to remember that while Jesus was rejected by many, including the ruling religious elite for the most part, many among his people believed. In fact, after Peter's first sermon, preacher's dream, after Peter's first sermon, 3,000 were converted. And shortly after that, as they dispersed in groups where the means of grace were available, Acts 2.44, I think, says numbers increased day after day after day. Jews did believe, but is that all? Whoever implies more than that. As John and the other gospel writers record, the Lord did not refuse to receive any who put their trust in him. You might remember the story of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. Her daughter was sick. And after Jesus said to her, she's pleading with him, I am sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The story wasn't over. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The genealogy of the Lord Jesus includes foreigners, Canaanites, Moabites, foreigners who put their faith in the covenant God of Israel. He does not refuse any who do. So who is it that receives him? Or what does it mean to receive him? The other half of verse 11 says, believing in his name, those who believe in his name. Verse 12, rather. To believe in the name is to trust, confess, yield, accept his testimony that he's come to save sinners, that he came as the second Adam to do what the first Adam could not do, that is, live perfectly. And that when we put our trust in him, him alone, we may receive what he has earned as if we earned it. This is the good news. Not that salvation is possible for us, but in Christ, we have it. The one who believes in his name, who receives him, is at the same time given adoption papers. We love adoption, don't we? We should. To those who believe in his name, he gave to them the privilege to become children of God. Become children of God. Another way to understand this is we are made into children of God. The phrase is written the same way verse 13 is written. The word was made through him. Here we are made children of God. This is clearly the work of another. And how is it accomplished? We are made into the children of God because we're given the privilege, or the ESV says the right, or even the authority. This doesn't mean that it's in response to something we did. We were made. This verse, however, verse 12, shows the deep pockets of grace and blessing of the Lord. How he has this boundless grace and mercy and salvation for all who believe in his name. When someone receives the light of life, beloved, we don't just get a new light, we get the light. To have the light is to have the sun. To have the sun is to have the rights and privileges and authority that the sun has. Have you ever thought about that? To be in him is to have what he has, have access to what he has access to. All the rights and privileges of the sons of God, we are younger brothers and sisters to him. We have family access to God. We have the right to inherit all manner of things that belong to him. This is what happens when you're made into a son or a daughter. 
It's to be given the same status as the Son. Have you ever thought of that? Can you believe that? From the love of God, He gives this privilege, this right, this access, this interest to all who receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not given by the Pope, by the Archbishop, not even given by the Presbytery. It's, given a, it's not given as a wage, the result of something we would do. It's simply a gift that God gives to us that we receive by faith. That privilege or right or authority is one that all of us who receive it, we use it. Jesus doesn't say you, you can have it if you want it. No, God makes us into sons and daughters because we have believed in his name. And this gift isn't for Jews only or Gentiles only. It's for all who receive. And look at verse 13. Who not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but from God they were born. John makes explicit all that I've been drawing out of verse 12. Being made into the children of God isn't a result of blood, natural descent. It's not a result of the will of the flesh, sexual intercourse, nor is it the will of man, human volition, from God, we were made children of God. The main reason we need not fear to hold the truth is that when we go to share God's saving word and he prepares the one to hear it, there's nothing that stands in the way of that person responding to the gospel and being saved. Nothing. We must not fear to hold the truth of God's word because some will receive it. Let's apply this in two ways. Number one, Becoming children of God is not conditional upon us or anything in creation. Think about that. Becoming children of God is not contingent upon us or anything in creation. Nothing. When, when it is the time for one of God's elect to believe, she will. When it's the time for one to forsake a lifestyle of rebellion from God, he will. How? God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Here's the answer. God, having out of his mere good pleasure, from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life. He did enter into a covenant grace to deliver them out of sin and misery into salvation by a Redeemer. God saves because God is good. He saves in perfect timing every time. So what does this mean for us? We share the gospel every time we have the opportunity to do so. We don't dumb it down. We share the universal human need due to sin. We share the total inability for a natural person to earn anything spiritual. We share the fact that one has come who was able and did accomplish what was spiritual so that now all who believe are not under the condemnation of our sins. We share that someone must simply repent and believe. And if it is the plan of God for that person to be saved, he will be, period. It's a simple one, two, right? We share, God saves, period. Nothing in our world can stay his hand from saving someone from our sins. Not our pathetic lives of materialism or addiction. Not our less than accurate telling of the gospel to someone. Ever fear that, that you're going to share it wrong? No. Our histories that we were saved out of, aren't you afraid to share your background? You shouldn't be. Or the innumerable voices around us that scream, get what you can, you're worth it. None of these will stop the Lord from making someone born again if it is her time. None of them will keep the Lord from redeeming one 
when it's His time. Becoming children of God is not conditional upon anything or anyone in all of creation. Secondly, becoming children of God cannot be undone. Becoming children of God cannot be undone. I said earlier that the way verse 12 is written is like the way verse 3 is written. Let me read it to you again. All things were made through Him. All who receive Him were made children of God. Just as creation cannot be unmade, God's covenant with Noah ensures that, neither can the new creation be unmade. God's covenant in Christ ensures that. Our confession of faith says this, As there is no sin so small but deserves damnation, there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. You know Romans 8.1, don't you? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there any conditionals in there? Any if-then statements in there? No. There is no condemnation. Not now, not ever. You know, that doesn't mean perfection in this life. It just means before the Lord, what He sees in us, He sees in His Son, holiness and beauty and blamelessness. Remember what we said earlier, when we are made into sons and daughters of God, this is because He gives us the light, the Word, the Son. We are in Him, which means we are in spiritual union with Christ. Branches grafted onto the tree are a part of the tree. To be in Christ, as Paul says, means to have His righteousness, His holiness. How how can we possibly be condemned once we have that? Isn't that what Paul says later on in, that, in Romans 8? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Sinless, blameless, and adopted in God's sight. How can we undo those things? If we are made children of God because we were born of God, how can we possibly be reborn in the flesh? You remember Nick Demas? Remember his issue? How confused he was? He says, how can a man... Be born when he's old. Can he enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Of course, the answer is that's ridiculous. But we can say the same thing. How can a man be born of the flesh again when he's been born of God by the Spirit? He can't be. It's just as ridiculous, but in a really good way. Only the word of truth has this kind of guarantee. Jesus says this in John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been born again, our lives will change. We will begin to hate our sins. We will begin to love righteousness and holiness. Once we broke the commandments of God without thinking about it, we will love, begin to love obedience instead. Of course, we're human and we will still sin. There will still be seasons when we aren't interested in following the Lord. He is long-suffering and patient. And if we're talking about a prodigal, a true son or a daughter of the Father, then he or she will return. Beloved, our assurance of our salvation will sometimes be strong and sometimes be weak. But the Spirit will never abandon the one for whom Christ died. Jesus promised this in the Great Commission. The Great Commission isn't only a promise to be present in evangelism. It's a promise to be present with us. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
We need not fear to hold the word of truth simply because some will reject it. In fact, we must hold the word of truth so that those whom God has prepared to hear it will hear it. We can never know the difference until we do. So the fight for, against the darkness of this world, so often wearisome, even in the task of evangelism and holiness, for this fight, the Lord gives us the means of grace. It's not something you and I can do on our own. It's not something designed for us to do on our own. It's designed for us to do as we're empowered by the means of God's grace, the prayers, the fellowship, the stories of God's faithfulness that we tell to each other. When someone's losing their mind, they need someone who is not. And we're all here and not everyone's losing their mind at the same time. But it's the fellowship. It's the prayers. It's this word that God reminds us of. And it is the table. And so let's eat.